Well, good morning, Gospel Grace. Good to see you all this morning. As Will introduced, uh, my name is Luke Bilesma. I have the privilege of serving as a uh, fellow in the Church Planting and Church Revitalization Fellowship. And uh, I'm excited and thankful for the privilege to open the Word with you this morning. What I want to do is I want to begin with prayer, uh, asking the Lord to uh, provide for us um, as, we, as we look into His Word for open hearts and for His Spirit to lead us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for what we've sung about this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the fact that we got to see believers testify to the work you've done in their hearts. What a joy and privilege it is to watch uh, people confess Christ. Father, this is the season we think about you more, and we want to celebrate and glorify you much today in light of those things. And God, we pray this morning that you would open up our hearts to the word. Lord, that you would free us from distractions, free us from things that might keep us from hearing your word. Lord, I pray that I would not be a distraction to your word, but that your word would be clear this morning. I pray that you'd help those that are here this morning to leave here thinking about the greatness of your promises and why we should believe them why you've given us great reason to believe them. Father, would you please help us this morning to take you at your word, to walk away confident this morning that you are the one who fulfills all of his promises. Father, please lead us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing on with our Advent series in the book of Luke, and we're confronted with this idea of promises. And promises are essential for all of our lives. Promises like this, yes, honey, I'll take out the trash. That's a promise maybe some of you made this week. Or, yes, dad, I'll clean my room. And some of these promises are fulfilled, some are not. And you kids know whether you fulfilled that promise this week. And you dads know whether you took out the trash. But the level of our Promises gain significance when we we consider what the promise is. So take this promise, for example. I'm going to give you a million dollars. You're right now wondering, is he serious? You know I'm not. But imagine hearing that promise given to you. We want to take into account who is giving me this promise. It might be your cute little three-year-old daughter, in my case, who's running around promising you all kinds of money in the world that she has no idea what she's talking about. And you take that into account as you consider the promise given. But it takes on a different weight when we consider where it's coming from. Think about this. Where that promise came from, a respected business person who is well off and who loved you much and was ready to give you something to help you in life, we would slow down and consider that promise in a different way. You see, our main question this morning has to do with the promises of God. The question we might even ask ourselves as we come to this Advent season is, why should we believe any of this Christmas story? Why should we believe any of what we're talking about here? When we consider the facts and the details of the story, honestly, some of it seems hard to believe at times. How could this be? Yet even in this question, we are tapping into something even deeper still. Why should we believe any of the promises of God? 
Now, if we're familiar with scriptures, we know that God has given you and me plenty of promises in his word this morning. And this morning, as this, as this question is ringing in our ears, why should I believe this promise? I want us to look at Luke 1 and walk through the story, and I think we'll find a clear answer here. An answer for why should we believe? Why should I believe these promises? And then why should I believe any of the promises that God has given? And it begins here that God is the promise maker himself. Now Luke, not me Luke, not Luke is Pastor Luke, but Luke, the author of this book, is a masterful historian as Pastor Luke talked about last week. He's woven together stories in these opening chapters and he's wanting us to see a comparison and contrast in the story. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the first story in the first part of chapter one. Now we come to the story of Mary in the second part. And Gabriel, we'll see, he comes to both of them. If you look at the parallels, he gives both of them an announcement. They both respond, and the angel's words come to pass. But what these similarities do is they set up a contrast to the things that are distinct between them. So here's an example. Pastor Lucas and I have a very similar first name. If you've not caught that, my name is Luke, he is Lucas. So just to be clear, we both have beards. I trimmed mine recently, just in case you didn't know, and, but we still both have beards. But there are distinctions between us. I am younger than he is, and I am taller than he is, okay? So when you, when you compare and contrast, now clearly I'm working all of those contrasts in favor of myself this morning, not him, you start to see distinctions that pop up. And this is what Luke is doing in the stories. He's comparing and contrasting these two stories, because he wants you to see something very specific. This is what I love about narrative. Narrative is powerful. It's a powerful picture, intricately woven, as we'll see here this morning. And Luke begins by setting the scene for us. So just, we're going to walk through this passage together. Look at verses 26 and 27. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. What I love is that God, the promise giver, is approaching ordinary people in insignificant towns, specifically Mary. Gabriel had just been in the temple in Jerusalem. He had been talking to Zechariah, a priest, and so he spent time with his priestly family in this great town of significance, Jerusalem, all of these things were great. Then now he's tasked to go to a place where few people knew of and to a woman who is young, poor, and completely ordinary. Nazareth itself was well, not well known. In fact, Luke has to help his readers in this text understand even where it's at. So he says, in the city or to a city of Galilee, he wants them to know, okay, there's a place called Nazareth and here is where it's located. The only other review we get of this town is from one of Jesus' future disciples in John chapter 1, verse 46. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is there anything good there? It certainly didn't seem like Nazareth was scoring well on the Yelp reviews. It was not a town that was well known. And here Gabriel goes to a person named Mary. Now Luke is very careful in these verses to point out something very significant. She was a virgin. And in fact, before he even gives her name, he's identifying twice that this young woman is a virgin, which is hugely significant for our story this morning. Mary was likely between the ages of 12 to 14, 
which was a common age during those years in the first century, to become married. A man would become betrothed to women before witnesses and with the investment of a bride price, something that uh, dads of daughters sometimes wish still happened. Then a year after this particular moment, the marriage would be consummated. So there was a year between the betrothal, Joseph and Mary, and then later when the marriage is consummated. And so during this time, the, the betrothal period was serious enough that if someone were to break the, the betrothal, it would require divorce. So in this particular situation, Mary, who's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who just so happens to be a descendant in the family line of David. Just like any opening scene of a good movie, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the movie starts with these key details that begin to be unfolded as the movie progresses. And as you get to the end of the movie, you realize at the beginning, oh man, all of these things were happening already. And that's exactly what's happening here. You see, Mary's a virgin. We see her, her line or the line of Joseph specifically here in this text. We find that there's something very significant going on and God is delighting and sharing his promises with ordinary people. And I love how Kent Hughes says it. He says, this is written to a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Do you feel that way sometimes? Considering the fact that you are one out of eight billion people on the earth, it's pretty easy to feel like we are insignificant, that we're just ordinary people. But what we read in here in this passage and other texts in scripture is that God delights in using ordinary people and giving to them his promises. And God comes to this ordinary person, Mary, to this insignificant town of Nazareth, and he comes to share his promise in a surprising way. Look at verses 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So here's Gabriel coming and surprising her in one sense, but you see the surprising aspect I think of this passage is really the lack of surprise that Mary has at the angel's presence. If you remember from last week, Lucas pointed out that Zechariah responded pretty significantly to this angel's presence, coming and appearing in the temple. But here a young woman encounters this angel and her surprise has to do with what he says. Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So as Mary was wrestling with this greeting, the angel responds and continues on in much the same way he did with Zechariah. He says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now what is clear from this verse is that Mary's favor is from God, not because of herself. It is the result of God's benevolence toward her. She is the recipient of God's grace, much the same way that you and I are the recipients of God's grace today, just like those testifying here this morning. She is unique in that she, of all the people, has been chosen to be the mother of Jesus the Messiah. But it wasn't because God had searched the earth and found someone who was inherently worthy of themselves to be the bearer. No, God chose to pour out his grace on her. He showed her his benevolence. So Mary, as his favored person, is given the promise that God is with her. That's a promise, a little preposition that is packed with incredible encouragement and meaning throughout Scripture. 
I love just tracing it through the Old Testament, New Testament. You see that God's promising to be with people, especially at key moments in, in history. But here, what I love is God is promising to be with her. And just think about what the story is going to talk about later. He will be with her in a very significant way. God is going to be with her. So God's promise came to her in a surprising way. And though we likely will not encounter angels ourselves, God is reminding us that his promises come to us as we open up the word of God. These promises might come to us when we are going through difficulties or struggles. We might open up his word and then there God meets us in that moment with a truth that we so desperately need. God still offers you his promises today. They still come today through his word. And they may come even at times when you least expect it. So to this ordinary woman, God begins to share of the long-awaited promise concerning his son. Look at verses 31 and 33. And behold, the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel Gabriel has just told Mary that she, a virgin, would have a son. Not just any son, but the promised son, the Messiah, that all of her ancestors have been longing for and looking forward to. This son would be called Jesus. Jesus in that day was a very common name, but it had meaning just packed into it. Matthew brings this out in Matthew 121. He says, she will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Just think about this. Did Mary know in that moment all that that word would mean? I mean, think about all that is packed in there in the name of Jesus. So just like Luke has been comparing Zechariah and Mary, he's also now comparing John with Jesus. John, who is, who is told was going to come in the first part of chapter 1, He is called in chapter 1, verse 15, great before the Lord. He's the forerunner. And that's a great standing. And here Jesus is simply called great. But don't let that fool us. As the text goes on to say, he will be called the son of the most high. I love how Philip Reichen works this. And he says, no one is greater than he is. Jesus is great in wisdom, great in power, great in love, and great in the majesty of his divine being. His greatness is the greatness of God. He is greater than John. This baby boy would not be ordinary in any way. He would be the eternal son of God wrapped in flesh. So here, in this meager house, in an unknown town, standing across from an ordinary woman, Gabriel announces that not only is this the son, the very son of God, but he is the promised Messiah. Gabriel shares the long-awaited promise given by the promise maker himself. Now, the fountainhead of this promise goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want you to turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 7. When we flip to this book in the Bible, we need to understand that there is a period of a thousand years between 2 Samuel 7 and the moment that Gabriel and Mary are standing in this house. A thousand years has taken place between these two moments. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that a king named David 
is desiring to build God a house. He wants to give God an upgrade. He'd been living in this tent, dwelling among his people since the land of Egypt, since they had left. But God would not allow David to fulfill that desire, part of his plan. But instead, God promises David, David, I'm going to build you a house. This isn't a literal home, but a metaphorical one. Speaking of David's lineage and dynasty, listen as I read verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then go down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As the story of the Old Testament continues to unfold, no one is found who fulfills this promise perfectly. Solomon certainly comes and builds a temple. Yet it was clear throughout the Old Testament that someone was still to come to fulfill this. So if you fast forward from 2 Samuel 7, 250 years to Isaiah chapter 9. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 of another promise, and one that's familiar to us during this season of the year. When Isaiah is writing of the coming Messiah, during a time when all the kings are failing, no one is doing it right, no one could possibly be the promised one. And he says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This promise of a coming Messiah weaves its way through the Old Testament like a thread. And a thousand years before Gabriel and Mary are standing together, the promise is given, and then through the Old Testament, we see it come up over and over again. And then now we see it fulfilling itself fully here in this meager house with this ordinary woman, as Gabriel shares of this promise. As we consider why we should believe the promises of God, we need to begin by recognizing that they come from the promise maker himself. We need to consider the source of the promise because that gives us confidence then that the promise will be fulfilled. Our promises are not dependent on any man. These aren't man-made ideas or man-made thoughts that we hope will someday take place. No, these are from God himself and that we can rest assured because of that that they will come to pass. When I think of this promise of the Messiah, we think a thousand years has taken place. Sometimes it may feel like the promises that God has given to you are taking a long time to come to bear. It may feel like God maybe forgot that promise somewhere along the way. But we remember from this story and from so many others in Scripture that if God is the one who makes the promise, we can be sure that he will fulfill the promise. In fact, that's where our passage goes next. It tells us that God is the promise fulfiller. He is the keeper of all of them. Now, if you were there, going back to the story for a moment, in Mary's shoes, hearing all of this information, just think for a second, what questions would you be thinking of in your head? What, what, what things would be going through your mind is like, you're thinking, I'm going to bear the promised one, the promised Messiah. 
Now, Mary does have a question in verse 34, and I love, I love this question because it tells us that Mary is a very practical woman. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, on the surface, Mary's question might seem similar or not that different to Zachariah's question. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How will I know that we will have a son in our old birth? But as Lucas pointed out last week, he's really asking, how can I be sure that miracles will take place? Mary's question is not one of disbelief like Zachariah's. It's one of true practicality. In fact, at the root of her question is a good understanding of how biology works. Mary is a very practical woman. She understands that Gabriel is implying that she would become pregnant very soon and possibly even right then in that moment. So how would this work? Should she is still betrothed? She's not yet consummated a marriage. Mary doesn't need a lesson on the birds and the bees. She understands and has a high view of marriage. So her question is very practical. Okay, so this is going to happen, but uh, we have a problem here, Gabriel. What, what are you going to do about this? Gabriel responds and tells us that we don't just have a God who makes empty promises or who hopes that we'll, his promises will somehow just work themselves out. They'll just happen in his own way. Now, he fulfills his promises. He's intentional with his promises. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most holy will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. The virgin birth of Jesus is one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible and truly also one of the most contested. The idea that God would supernaturally conceive a baby in Mary's womb apart from the natural means of sex is difficult for some to accept. So I think it's worth our time to take a moment and consider what is it that the angel is saying here? The virgin birth, he says, will come through the supernatural work of the Spirit and God the Father. Just like the Spirit was present at creation, hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2, intimately involved in the creation process of the whole world. Just like God's presence was clear in the overshadowing of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, just as it would be in the transfiguration coming up later in Luke chapter 9, we find that they are going to be present with Mary in a very unique way. And it's through that presence that they would bring about this miraculous birth of Jesus. Now, some of the doubts that arise about the virgin birth come from skepticism about those who are living in the first century. And I think C.S. Lewis just captures it well. He says this, The early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin. But we know that this is a scientific impossibility. Such people seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when men were so ignorant of the cause of nature that they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to it. But we know that's simply not true. Mary readily understood the biological factors necessary to produce a son. That's why she asked her question. Joseph, her betrothed husband, was considering divorcing her because he understood how babies naturally come. 
To top it off, Luke here, the author, is a physician who understands how all of this is working. So they are not ignorant of the miraculous nature of this birth. So there's another solution, though. The problem does not require doubt on our end or ignorance on their end. There is a better solution that comes from this text itself. It's found in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. The B.D. Anawabi writes, the moment you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. If we believe in God, then he is able to do the impossible from our perspective. The same God who created the world and brought life to everything. The same God who put life in Elizabeth's barren and old womb is the same God who's able to bring life in this miraculous way. And in this miraculous birth, God was doing something incredible, something extraordinary. He was creating a Savior who was 100% man through Mary and 100% God through the Spirit. The virgin birth is not just any miracle. It tells us how Jesus is distinct from all others. He is fully man and he is fully divine. This is what John writes about when he says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This baby was God incarnate. This is the eternal son of God. He wasn't just born there in that moment. No, this is the son who lived in eternity past, who's now coming and wrapping himself in flesh so that he could be the perfect savior for you and me. This is the one who is now suitable to take our place on the cross. That is the significance of this virgin birth. So while Mary's question revolved around the practicality of such a promise being fulfilled, we find here one of the most significant truths in the Bible. God is able to do the impossible to fulfill his promises. So what does that mean for us? It means that if God is able to fulfill this promise, just to be clear, he did. We see it right here. If God is able to fulfill this promise, then he will fulfill all of the promises he has given in his word. We can be sure of that. In this way, the promises concerning God's son become the certainty of all that would come. I love how Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Jesus, he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. We have a certainty because of this fulfillment. Because of God is the promised fulfiller. You can be sure that all of your sins can be forgiven at the cross. Every last one. You can be sure that all that takes place in your life, hard and good alike, is for your good and for his glory, as Romans 8 tells us. You can be sure that he, what he says he, will happen. It will take place just as he has promised he will hold you fast, as Jude 24 tells us. We have this certainty that we may feel weak at times, that we may feel like we're going to fail at times. You can be sure that his grace is sufficient for you. You can be sure that when you feel alone, he is with you as he has promised in Matthew 28. All of these promises and so much more are ours, and we can have confidence that they will come to pass because God is fulfilling this promise right here, and he has done it. But even as we hear all of these good reminders, we won't always see the promises come to pass when we want them to. They don't always take place at the moment we wish they would, just like it was with the, the Davidic promise. But there's a point here we need to consider 
We need to consider what Mary does next in verse 38, how she responds to all of these promises. So the angel is telling her, listen, God is going to make this happen. He's going to do the impossible. Mary responds, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary takes God at his word and trusts him. She surrenders to him. She's willing to do whatever it is that is necessary. She says, God, I trust you. I'm just going to take you at your word that this will come to pass in the way you want. What we need to realize is that this was no small decision for Mary. Mary faced the real likelihood that Joseph would divorce her, that she would raise this child on her own as a single mom. Mary faced the possibility that she would wear a scarlet letter around town for the rest of her life and that when she walked down the street, the neighbor was, neighbors would run into their homes and gossip about her behind her back. Mary recognized that there would be great suffering that would come in, in many different ways, future suffering and current suffering as she goes through this. But in all of that, she surrendered to God's plan and took him at his word. She trusted him. She trusted that God was not only the one who gave the promise, but that he could fulfill the promise. What follows, though, is another gracious act toward Mary on this journey of belief where God shows her that he is also then the promise affirmer. God is able to affirm the promises given to her. Now think back to the story for a moment. Mary is surrendering. She's saying, all right, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. And then as the text shows us, the angel is gone at the end of verse 38, and the angel departed from her. You can imagine Mary just sitting there as the angel is gone thinking, okay, angel, could you have like at least left me a, a red phone to call you up if I have questions along the way from struggling? I can just, hey, Gabriel, what do I do? But he doesn't do that. Here, here Mary is sitting and just thinking about all this. You can just imagine what's going through her mind as she's just dazed thinking, wait, I'm going to be the one who bears the promise that helps us fulfilled through, through my womb? I'm going to be the, the mother of the Messiah Feelings of excitement and joy, feelings of uncertainty about what is the future going to hold. And then as she's sitting there, she's like, wait, wait, I need to go to Elizabeth. Because he said Elizabeth is pregnant as well. And so Mary, verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she goes there quickly. And you can just imagine just like the many times you take trips on the road and your mind is just filled with something else. And you end up at your destination. And you're like, wait. I just drove, and I don't even remember. Did I pass cars? Did I go through that red light? I don't have a clue, and here's Mary, traveling 80 to 100 miles on this journey to Elizabeth's door, and she's just thinking in her mind about all that the Lord was gonna do, and then she comes and she knocks on the door. And here we come to verse 40. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Oh, there must have been some giddy joy in that house. We hear these two women greeting each other, and they were ecstatic, both of them going to be bearers of children in unprecedented ways, miraculous ways. 
And just as they were giddy in that moment, we can be sure that 2,000 years later, the story is still true, isn't it, ladies? There is excitement at new life and new birth. Yet this story stands alone in its uniqueness. Mary discovers quickly that God is affirming his promises through his people. I mean, just think about the scene taking place here. In the first case, a person who hasn't even breathed his first breath is the one who's greeting Mary at the first, John leaping in his mother's womb. Then Mary receives the affirmation again as she looks and she, she sees Elizabeth. She's pregnant, six months along. And hopefully she could say that out loud and not be offending anybody. But here's this reality. This woman is very clearly pregnant. An affirmation of all that God has been saying so far. A certainty that Mary could trust what God has said to her. But we see the affirmation continues through the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, who is filled with the Spirit, pronounces this blessing on Mary. Mary will have a special place in history. She's the mother of my Lord. She is the recipient of God's unmerited grace and favor. And in this blessing, Mary finds yet another affirmation of the promises that were given to her. When, when, excuse me, when Elizabeth recognizes by the Spirit that Mary is pregnant with the Lord. This is an allusion to Psalm 110.1. says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm is referenced repeatedly in the New Testament. It's another messianic thread weaving itself through Scripture, finding its fulfillment in Jesus. So here, Mary is being affirmed. The baby that's in your womb, yeah, that's the Lord. So Elizabeth affirms it through the Spirit that Mary is carrying the Messiah. I want you just to think about this for a moment. The baby in Elizabeth's and Mary's wombs are all spoken of as people. One expressing emotion, joy, that's John. The other identity, my Lord. Mary's baby, maybe in the embryonic stage, Elizabeth's, maybe in the third term, are given characteristics of people because that's who they are. Scripture is incredibly clear about the personhood of the unborn. But where does all of this leave us? What, is, like, what do we do with this? See, God is the affirmer of his promises. And in this case, he has chosen to affirm his promises through people, through the unborn and through the born, and through his spirit. And there will be times when we step out in faith, taking God at his word, when he will graciously affirm those promises to us. At times he may use people to encourage you to trust his promise. Or at other times he will use his spirit through his word to bring affirmation that his promises are true. These promises, though, are not built on some subjectivity. They're built on the objective truth of his word. And it's through that we can have affirmation that what God says will come to pass. Now as we near the end of the story, we discover that key distinction that Luke is wanting us to see with this comparison and contrast. He's showing us what is it that is so distinct between Zechariah and Mary's response to the story. Look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed the promise. In verse 38, we saw that she took God at his word, humbly submitting herself to the promise. 
She believed that the promise of her son would, of this long-awaited Messiah would come to pass. She believed that God would carry it out. And here it's being told about her. Mary, you believe the promise. Blessed are you. So we come back to this question, the question we're trying to ask ourselves this morning. Why should we believe the promises of God about his son, Jesus? Why should we believe them? We see that God is the one who gives the promise. These promises are not just coming from somebody out there random. No, they're coming from God himself. We see that he is the one who fulfills the promises. He is the one who affirms the promises. Yet even with all of that, there is a call upon each of our lives to respond to what he says. Zechariah was a priest who knew the scriptures well. He worshiped often in the temple, yet he still did not believe what God had said to him. Though you and I might know a lot, we might know the scriptures well, we might know all that God says in his word, yet we can still follow in his steps of unbelief. We can still hear these words and say, you know what, I just don't believe it. I'm gonna reject it. But that's not the only story we see here. We see the story of Mary, a young teen with far less understanding, with far less knowledge as Zechariah had. Yet she took God at his word. She believed the promise. She acted in faith. So my question for you this morning is how will you respond to the promises of God this Advent season? Will you believe that God sent his son to take on flesh as a baby so that he could hang on the cross in our place as the only imperfect sacrifice for all of our sin? Will you believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is our salvation and the only way we can have eternal life? Will you believe this?